Hi guys, welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Hall, and I just want to note that the connection might be a bit off again. Hopefully it's better and hopefully it'll hold, but we'll get through as many questions as we can. We're giving you as high quality content as we can and bear with us. So I've got Mike again with me today and uh, we've got a bunch of your questions to answer. So um, let's get to the first one. These are some from last time that I think would just benefit from being answered. Uh, just a couple. So Carlo has asked, what are your thoughts, Mike, on intuitive eating versus kind of macro counting? What's Carlo's last name? Uh, Carlo uh, Kipan. Oh. Never mind. I thought it was someone else. Yeah. So... Uh... Yeah, um, intuitive eating. You know, I think if you're trying to maintain homeostasis, if you're trying to maintain your body weight, and you're not an individual that typically struggles to maintain their body weight, and you didn't just finish a very hypocaloric dieting period or a, a very hypercaloric dieting period, if your metabolism and, and set point, settling point are all well adjusted, intuitive eating works really well. Um, for a lot of people, not all people. Because uh, generally your body's pretty good at maintaining your body weight, maintaining hunger levels. And uh, the amount of food you should eat can be intuitive. Um, the macros can't be intuitive because your body doesn't necessarily want to eat enough protein. <laughs> um, we are fundamentally all in this, and I assume this person's come from a background of trying to get more muscular, leaner, etc. Our goals are very artificial in nature. Our targets are esoteric and uh, a bit removed from normal biological systems parameters. And for that reason, everything that is instinctual is not going to usually get us to our goals. It's going to move us back away from them. So uh, in reality, intuitive eating and food amounts is okay in some limited sense for some people, but if you're very serious, you know, so for health, it's okay. But in addition to that, you may intuitively eat more junk food than you need to because intuitively junk food tastes good. Our intuitions were designed mostly in ancestral evolutionary past where hunger, uh, starvation were preeminent selective pressures. And that was also in a situation where we probably, you know, would want to eat more food and tastier food and uh, all the time, really, or most of the time. And uh, so, so while I, I, I want to give intuitive eating as much credit as I can, I think it's very psychologically healthy. It's the healthiest psychologically. Um, it relies on a, a very well-established good eating habits. Nowadays, you and I, Steve, we probably intuitively would eat lean meats, intuitively would eat a lot of veggies and fruits. But we didn't always used to be like that. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time to get those habits. So for people to have the habits and have a stable relationship with food and have maintenance as their number one goal, intuitive eating works okay as long as you keep a little bit of an eye out to make sure you get enough protein, to make sure you get enough fiber, and to make sure you're not intuitively snacking on all kinds of junk. When you cut off all of those contingencies, you're left with a population of people for whom intuitive eating works that's tiny. So I have to go on the other, uh, on the attack side of the argument and say that 
as a rule, promoting intuitive eating as number one is, is a gigantic disaster. Intuitive eating is mostly incorrect. It, intuitive eating is why the United States and Western Europe are dying from obesity epidemics. Every single obese person eats intuitively. So, um, you know, it's something that's very kind of earthy and hippie to say, like, just follow your intuitions and your body will know when you're not hungry anymore. Yeah, my body fucking wants to weigh 400 pounds. So, you know, like someone once asked Dorian Yates about intuitive lifting, which was like, you know, something in the early 90s that was happening where people like whatever they feel like they would train, they come to the gym and they feel like training back, they train back and they feel like doing some rows or some pull-ups, they do that. And I said, Dorian, what do you think about intuitive training? He said, if I was intuitive training, I'd be sitting on my couch right now having a beer because that's what I want to do. You know, this entire sport and entire pursuit and, and much of life is about programming and willfully executing artificial structures from the top down to modify what nature gave us. Intuitive everything usually sucks. Uh, it doesn't produce anything but survival in the barest essentials. So... If intuitive, if you can make more of your eating intuitive and stay stay on track, I think that's great. But don't expect it to be an easy process, and don't think that you know there's something wrong with artificial top-down macronutrient structures, timing structures. It's all designed to get you better. You're not intuitively supposed to be a very good athlete. You're not supposed mm -hmm. to be very jacked. You know, there wasn't anyone like Ronnie Coleman around. Ronnie Coleman, you know, assuming he's still the most muscular, him or you know, a Big Ramy, somebody like that. Big Ramey is the most muscular individual that's ever lived. There was no one like Big Ramey in all ancestral time because they weren't applying these top-down cultural artifacts, mm -hmm. ideas about what to eat, what to inject, what to, how to do it, and how to train. Intuition doesn't take us very far as far as big goals and accomplishments. So I don't have much good to say about intuitive eating, but you know, eating can be more intuitive during times when you're maintaining and you don't have a lot of crazy goals and just doing strength training and then you know if you you know especially with particular foods i think intuitive eating is great you know if you mm -hmm. want salmon versus turkey that's great but it's also irrelevant largely as to which one you choose um so i think from that perspective it's good and if you can keep on your protein and do a good job there intuitive eating works for some people mm -hmm. but let's not just uh, i don't want to assume that it works do you think intuitive eating is some kind of answer to a problem uh if you have to ask the answer is no mm -hmm. <laughs> Like, uh, if, if intuitive eating works for you, great. You got lucky, but it's by no means, it, it works for very few people. Mm -hmm. I guess our bodies are designed to keep within a certain set, like body fat set points. It loves homeostasis. So it's going to fight that it's got hormonal structures in place. So long as you're healthy to keep it in line, but it also is kind of calculated to desire calorie dense foods and delicious foods and those things you can't always attack intuitively. Um, something I have used with my clients is kind of tracking as least, well, as minimum amount of things as possible so that they can still get their goals. So maybe they just track their body weight and protein or protein and calories and body weight, things like that. But yeah, I think I completely agree. It, I personally couldn't eat intuitively and progress like I want to. Exactly. Cool. Uh, so we'll get to the second question, which is from Shimmy Hacker, which also kind of answers Ben Shepard's question. And it's very much to do with calorie cycling, asking nutrition on recovery days during a mass phase and cutting phase. How much less should we eat on rest days versus training days? 
or should we just keep a level intake throughout the week? That's a very good question. You know, the, the, in, in a large sense, one of the reasons why we differentiated so highly between rest days and training days in the Renaissance diet and in our templates is the universality of application that that allows. Here's what I mean by that. If you have someone who trains three days a week versus someone who trains five days a week, if you tell them to eat the same amount of food every day, you're going to overfeed the three-day-a-week trainee and underfeed the five-day-a-week trainee. But if you tell them to eat plenty of food on their training days and not so much food on their off days, that's going to recalibrate everything and adjust automatically. Mm -hmm. But if you train six days a week, you eat a lot of food because every day is a training day. You eat training day food, which is more. If you train two days a week, you eat very little food, but you're supposed to eat very little food or relatively speaking, much less because you don't have that kind of crazy expenditure, right? So it's a kind of self-solving problem. In addition to that, there are some structural considerations that when you are training, before training, you need more carbohydrates to be allocated. During and possibly during in some situations, definitely after training, you're in a more uh, you know, conducive environment, insulin sensitivity and carbohydrate sensitivity. So it's better to eat more carbohydrates post-training. Probably good to avoid fats in that general window. So you're eating there. It's going to be a little bit different fundamentally. And off day, there are some different considerations. You can go lower carb and be okay. So there are definitely differences that arise on the macronutrient and timing fronts, for sure. When you start to train often, five days a week, six days a week, especially if you're training really hard and especially if you're doing multi-day training, you won't really be able to replenish all of your glycogen for during the training. And if you're looking at some kind of uh, fear of, well, you know, on the off days, I better not eat too much or else I'll get super fat. You think, okay, but if you have one off day a week <laughs> and you just eat the same amount on the off days, you do carbs and everything that you do on the training days, how fat is that going to get you with one day? It's not. It's probably going to replenish some glycogen too and really promote recovery because you really need recovery. But if you train twice a week, do you really need to smash 400 grams of carbohydrates every other day? Probably not. So if you train very infrequently through the week or your training volume every time you do train is relatively low, two to three days a week, an hour at a time, even with calories, there is a distinct uh, recognition of the fact that you need fewer calories on your off days and you need fewer calories, more calories on your training days. There's definitely a pulsatility there. As you train more and more, five days a week, six days a week, two a day training, you can pretty much eat the same amount every day and, and it's actually probably a net benefit because on the days that you're not training hard, that's when you should be eating to compensate for the losses you incur in glycogen, muscle glycogen and fatigue and all this other stuff on a training day. When I just did my recent cutting phase and actually just all the time sort of, cause I train a lot all the time. I train with weight six days a week in jujitsu two to four times a week. And I do walking cardio in addition to that on my off day when I don't train, which I don't actually have a technical off day now it's either cardio or weights or jujitsu, but on days in which I train much less, sometimes I have off days. 
I eat just as much as on training days mm-hmm. because when you train that much, I mean, you're just constantly in an ability to replenish muscle glycogen. But if you're an individual who trains three times a week with weights for an hour at a time and maybe doesn't do much cardio, it does probably pay to eat more calories on your training days and fewer calories on your off days because the demand is different. Mm-hmm. Um, will it all cancel out at the end of the week from a body weight perspective? Absolutely. Calories in, calories out over the week is all that matters. From a body composition perspective, you would probably be better served eating more calories on training days and fewer on off days. Why? Because on training days, you need more calories for energy to have good workouts. If you tried to work out on off-day calories, you would suffer. And it's probably very likely that the anabolic stimulus from training, the cascade of growth, is benefits in a high-carbohydrate, high-insulin environment in the several hours post-training. Muscle glycogen is more sensitive to restoration, and you probably get the gears rolling on training better that way, and the calories too. Mm-hmm. So both pre- and post-training, so in the training day, probably going to have more calories, particularly from carbohydrate. And off days, if you don't train very often, good idea to eat a little bit less because the demand isn't quite there. And if you eat it, you'll put on a little bit more body fat. But if you cancel that out by not eating as much on, on the training days, so your, your pulsatility is less, you'll gain less muscle. So over the course of you know 10 weeks, 8 weeks, you may get slight differences in muscle and fat accumulation or, or, or uh, you know, deletion uh, if you don't use a pulsatile approach versus one that's not. Now, it's a small matter. It's a very small matter. But I think it, it's one that, that bears attending to if you're interested in better and better gains. Cool. Yeah, so if someone's training infrequently and they want to optimize their results, it makes sense to try and have some time in there. But if someone's just, if they're training really frequently or if they're not worried about optimized results, weekly averages is kind of the way to go. Yeah, and you can, all that sciencey stuff aside, you can just envision a very simple example. Someone who trains twice a day, six days a week, and then there's their off day, and you see them at brunch with their friends and they're smashing pancakes and donuts and stuff like that and, and eggs. And you'd be like, dude, why do you eat so much for? It's an off day today. And they're like, dude, I train six days a week, twice a day. You don't think I, I burned this off or you don't think I need to replenish this stuff? And they'd be like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But someone who like <laughs> trains twice a week and they're smashing pancakes and stuff on like a Sunday where the last time they trained was Friday and they don't train until Tuesday, just like, what you doing? They're like, I'm recovering for next week. Like, what the hell are you talking about? You, you recovered from next week, last week, right? So it just uh, that's basically where that logic starts, and it's kind of a simple example of that. Awesome. Um, so I'm looking forward to this next one because you said you wanted to rant on it, so I wanted to get it in early so we had enough time uh, because we love a Israel rant. So oh, it's from Sandre Nigard. I might be pronouncing that wrong. He is actually one of our clients who Revive Stronger, so I'm glad he got you a, a nice question here. It, uh, is it important to keep a muscle under constant tension during a set? If so, would exercises such as conventional deadlifts, alternating lunges, alternating bicep curls be suboptimal for hypertrophy? Mm-hmm. I've been recently made familiar with a concept called myo reps. You're sure you've heard yep. of this? What's that guy's name? Bjor, Bjorn, Bjorg, something really Fatelli, cool. I, I say it wrong. Um, yeah, yeah but it, Bjorn. It, Very exotic compared to the two of us. So, yeah. Awesome name guy who is apparently, apparently very smart, knows his stuff. Um, has this idea of my reps, right? Where you like do a set of high reps, then you put the bar down, you wait several seconds, you do another couple, you put the bar down, do another couple. Mm-hmm. Here is something I find relatively baffling. 
and which is why uh, individuals like myself and other skeptics uh, in general, just skeptical thinkers like Greg Knuckles, um, a lot of other people come to mind, uh, which is why we kind of, one of the big passions for why we do what we do. We don't like unprincipled approaches. And I'm not accusing um, the individual that asked this question of having this approach. I'm, I'm just referencing something I've seen before. When someone compares training philosophies and styles on the basis of their names alone and doesn't, uh, is not interested in seeing the underlying principles that have to be checked to see if they work. I have been asked <laughs> by either the same person or in the same post how important um, constant tension was. And the same person is a quote, a really big fan of myo reps. Are you fucking serious? <laughs> One of those violates constant tension. How can you fucking like both of them? Now you can say variation and that's totally cool. But if there's some kind of magic behind constant tension, my reps just fucked that all up completely. <laughs> So my, one of my favorite, most baffling, fascinating things is that, you know, not, I'm not saying these are training fads. There are ideas that are good ideas sometimes, but people get caught in these ideas and they come and go and the same individuals will hold mutually contradictory ideas, uh, either in, in linear series time, like one month they're big on my reps, the next month it's all about constant tension, or at the same time, which is fucking insane, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. So... Um, to answer the question directly, there I, I am aware of absolutely zero fucking reasons that constant tension is a thing. I mean, zero. One thing constant tension might be good for is making sure to get the most metabolite load out of the least total volume. I'll be very clear about what I mean. Leg press. If you constantly have tension on the quads, which means you don't ever lock out, which sucks total balls, you might get 20 reps. That means your volume load was 350 pounds times 20 reps times the distance your legs moved, which is about the same every time. That's your volume load, and you got to a nasty, nasty, nasty metabolite situation at the end of that. I mean fried, right, where you like have to rack the weight and turn over and everything's cramped up. Now – to get the same kind of peak of metabolite expression, you could have done 30 reps by doing Meyer reps or rest pause, basically, right? You get 15, then you rest for just, you lock out for like five seconds, five breaths, and then you go another five, and then you lock out for another five seconds, and you do another four, and a three, and a two, and a one, or whatever, and you get to 30, right? You got this the same peak metabolite concentration towards the end. So like the last rep of 30 rep number 30, your legs hurt just as much as they did on 20 for the other one, but you did one and a half times the work. So if you're interested for some reason in getting good metabolite expression, but you're interested in minimizing workload, perhaps constant tension is a good idea. Um, there's a complication to that thought. <laughs> we're not so sure, we're reasonably sure, but not 100%. Is it the peak concentration of metabolites reached that is an anabolic stimulus? Or is it the sum area under the curve? Because if it's the area under the curve of total amount of metabolites you've been exposed to, 
then the myo reps method actually exposes you to more metabolites because you push it almost till you get fucked up and then you stop and you rest and you push it a little bit further you stop and rest it's a lot of metabolites it's a lot of metabolites it never gets super high just toward the end but you build 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 and then towards the end it fucks you up mm-hmm. so i would say that that style of training the myo rep style per set is more hypertrophic for sure because it gives you more volume load and it gives you a total bigger under area under the curve metabolite load. But if you want to hit it hard without having to do lots of work and still get a pretty decent metabolite load and decent work, constant tension is the way to go. But thought another way on the flip side, constant tension artificially delimits how many reps you can do per set. And if, if I was really pushing the metabolite front, my guess as uh, both a scientific thinker and a practical trainer uh, would be that my reps are the way to go because those little rest breaks don't let all the lactate go. They don't let all the metabolites mm-hmm. go. And you're back to going into hell and you're back and you're back. And they, that's a really, really big stimulus. And it's a lot of volume. Now the volume we can obviate because we could just say, why don't we just do more straight sets with constant tension? So we, you know, a hundred reps in a workout is a hundred reps, no matter how you fucking get there. Mm-hmm. But a hundred reps with myo rep style might also supply more metabolites because you're in the shit for longer. Mm-hmm. You're not as well rested during the time. Uh, so uh, from that perspective, constant tension is actually worse, right? It was like you do a lap pull down and after set, rep number 15, you just go to failure and it was constant tension the whole time. It hurt a little bit towards the end. But someone's like, why don't you rest and do more reps like in between? You're like, no, bro, constant tension. Like, I can't rest because it takes tension off the muscle. And it's like, but if you took tension off the muscle for a second, you went back at it, wouldn't that fuck you up more? And the answer is, yeah, it would fuck you up more, disrupt disrupt homeostasis more, and it gets you probably to grow more per unit volume because there's an additive metabolite load. Mm -hmm. So uh, what do I think about constant tension? Uh, For the most part, I think that taking many breaks between insofar as it's conducive is actually probably an advantage. Now, there's a very small difference between the two, and the total volume is what really determines most adaptations. But every now and again, something like Meyer-Ups is a good trick to throw in to really fry shit up that constant tension is unable to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, because constant tension, by definition, demands that you expose the muscle until it goes, assuming to failure, whatever failure proximity you're working with, when you're not able to do any more reps, you have to take a full break and rest and do another set. So that being said, people keep talking about constant tension, constant tension, well, it's all about tension on the muscle. I'm not exactly sure what the magical appeal of constant tension is. We know that tension you know, is a matter of generating workload, and the sum total tension multiplied by reps is what gets you to grow. So if you get there by, you know, every time you lock out your arms, your triceps stop working. Yeah, but how many total reps did you do? 20. That means you got 20 total tricep stimulus reps. Okay, great. What about with constant tension? Well, they did a set of 15 and I did a set of five. But it was all under constant tension. Well, then your triceps still got a fucking total load of 20 units. Mm-hmm. It's the same shit. So I'm not a big fan of constant tension uh, for that reason because they, I think it's rather pointless. And I think you can really get more out of a set if you don't have to do constant tension. People who use constant tension, in addition to that, oftentimes end up cutting the range of motion for no damn reason, which I don't like at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in really difficult exercises like bench pressing, squatting, deadlifting, constant tension is a real 
not great idea because you can't reset your technique. You know, when you bench, you start out with a good arch, but then your arch collapses after a mm -hmm. couple of reps. You want to reset that arch every now and again and do a good job. Constant tension. You and I have both seen sets in the gym where a guy's going for constant tension. And by the end, his technique is total fucking garbage. <laughs> why, why don't you reset and do a good job so you can target the muscles you want, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, that's, that's, that's kind of my thoughts on the matter. Let me know, uh, you know, what do you think about that? Does, does that sound? It sounds, I, I, I've had the same opinion in terms of constant tension in that often it's similar. It's like people who are going all like after slow burn time under tension, they're just going for that burn all the time. Whereas they're thinking they get more time under tension. But if you do kind of normal paced reps or you don't have constant tension or whatever it might be, you can then rest and do more and you've actually got more load done. You've done more reps. So that's actually more time under tension. And they're thinking too kind of insular about that one repetition rather than kind of the total mm -hmm. bigger principles mm -hmm. of the volume you're doing over the week. Absolutely. That's a great point. And with regular conventional training, you can use more weight. So you can be under more tension and maybe it's not even as much time the total area under the curve of time under tension might be higher and slow burn stuff just because the time and dilation is so large. Right. Mm -hmm. But the thing is time under tension. I don't like time under tension as a training variable. Most serious exercise physiologists and sport physiologists don't use that. They say volume. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they also use the term volume load or volume intensity because it factors in the intensity part. The time under tension for a marathon runner is going to beat everyone, but they don't fucking grow because they use such low resistances, their own bodies, it's not sufficient to activate much hypertrophy at all. Mm -hmm. So when people do like slow burn type of training, you know, like, oh, the time under tension was so high. Like, yeah, but the only reason you could afford that high of time under tension is because the tension fucking sucked. Like, yeah, yeah, with 100 pounds, I could fucking squat all day long. But what would that get me? Well, get me as jacked as 100 pounds gets me, not very. And if you lower the time under tension to expand the tension, well, fuck, man, tension's a much better predictor of growth than, than time by itself. <laughs> and the, is there a middle ground? Yeah, high volume loads at, you know, 60, 65% of 1RM to, to 80% of 1RM. We already know that's where you get most of your growth. Mm -hmm. How you do the sets and reps, so long as you're getting the work done, is, is a much smaller concern within that window. So my big problem with, with um, uh, constant tension type stuff is, is I never know what people think they're getting out of it. Um, I've talked to people. I want to keep tension on the muscle. Why? I've never gotten a good answer to that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, I don't know. I just guess it's as good as mine. And people say, you know, it saves your joints. Maybe. Uh, mm -hmm. And if your joints bother you, maybe you don't block out as much. Uh, that's totally cool. Saving your joints is a very different argument than some kind of a, you know, special hypertrophic tool, right? You know, I, I don't squat, someone could say. Be like, does that really get your legs bigger? Yeah, for me it does because it doesn't fucking break my spine because my spine's too fucked up to squat. But you don't think that, you don't talk to someone like that. Mind you, mm -hmm. it's not me. Uh, you don't talk to someone like that and go, oh, squatting's bad because it's bad for your spine. No, that pretty much happens to have a fucked up spine. And for them, squatting is bad because they're too messed up to do it. But in reality, you know, if you had a choice and you were healthy, you'd squat. <laughs> so just the same way, like if you have to do constant tension to avoid some kind of injury or something like that, great. Otherwise, I, I would say that, you know, traditional training should form most of your training. If you want to do some Maya reps every now and again, I think they're great. Constant tension every now and again, maybe for variation. But I certainly I think that comes at the very least 
maybe a slight expense in, in adaptation, and at the very least, it just doesn't do anything special. Whereas Maya reps could do some special stuff. You can you can disrupt homeostasis with Maya reps like you can with very a few other things. But you know, unbeknownst to me, I've been doing Maya reps on leg presses for as long as I've been <laughs> leg presses, and it's just a, what a terrible, terrible fucking thing. But it fucks you up really, really good. Yeah. So. I've been using my reps ever since I actually heard about it from Bill uh, Fratelli. I'm going to say his name completely wrong. And it was like one of the first things that got my calves completely sore and wrecked. I hadn't had that sort of feeling in my calves for a long time. I, yeah, done it. But it, you do lose nice. your, you lose that ability to get sore to it. You adapt to the, I find I adapt to my reps quite quickly. I guess it's like any metabolite tri- training. Yep. You got you to gotta thread it in every now and again, not all the time. Yeah. Cool. So we get on to Holger Dumsky's question, who's asked, what is better for longer-term progress and the goal of hypertrophy? Linear periodization with a strength phase of four weeks or daily undulating periodization, which I guess is the, the programming more variable, with a lighter session of kind of eight to 12 repetitions and then a heavier session of four to six repetitions. So I guess he's asking, would you prefer to see four to six repetitions done for a period of time and then eight to 12 in a separate block or that kind of undulation within the weeks. Fuck. I thought we were done talking about this shit. Yeah. It does come up a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Holger Google Greg Knuckles and I wrote two articles for juggernaut training. Um, and they're about periodization. So Google Greg Knuckles, Mike Israel periodization. And, and Steve, if you want to put it in the links of the podcast, yeah. it'd be great. Uh, so there's no such thing as linear periodization. There's no such thing as daily undulating periodization. There's not forms of periodization. They are kind of references to programming. No one's done linear programming in, in I don't know how long. What we're actually referring to is, is what's called uh, block-style programming, or uh, as otherwise known as block periodization, where you have a distinct blocks of training. Uh, what I think is between your two answers, I think that you can have a strength block that focuses on some days being maybe six to eight reps, other days maybe being three to five reps and undulated, okay, or varied within the week to promote variation, recovery, adaptation, and, and best stimulus. Another later block can have you, some of your days be between six and 10 reps and other days between 10 and 15 reps. That would be your higher volume block still has undulating elements, but is promoting more volume. Uh, in reality, I would say that you probably need two to three of those high volume blocks for every one of the low volume blocks to get the best hypertrophic outcomes possible because the low volumes are good every now and again, but too often you're just pissing away a lot of time training with low volumes, which is cool for getting stronger, not going to get you the biggest ever. So if you envision with your first example of linear periodization, so to speak, with a whole block of fives and then a whole block of tens after that, the tennis block, you're going to grow like it's going to be awesome, but not enough variation within the week to promote best recovery adaptation and best growth. So it's not the best growth, but it's good. Fives, are, you're resensitized to growth really well in the fives, but if you alternate those every other, you're really resensitized all the time, but you're not getting the most out of everything all the time. It's like stopping for gas every quarter tank in your car. It's fucking pointless. Um, you'll have no problems. You'll have gas all the time, but you'll also be pissing away a lot of time not driving. So stopping for gas to resensitize your body's hypertrophic mechanism is probably good every three, every four mesocycles. 
And each of those mesocycles cycles has to have variation and repetitions, volume load within the week variations to promote recovery adaptation to, you know, concord with the SRA principle, stimulus recovery adaptation. You can't always hit it hard. So, uh, yeah, so you want those blocks of mostly, you know, somewhere between 10 and 15 reps and 6 to 10 reps or in one block. You want that block to run probably three cycles in a row. And then you want a block that's, you know, three to five reps. And the other option is, you know, four to six reps or something. And those are alternated within the week. That promotes good strength gains, but it also allows those um, kind of resistances to hypertrophy to fall off. And then you would do some more hypertrophy training. Uh, going forward so perfect yeah i think that a lot of people get confused and maybe they think that it's almost they think that daily undulating periodization kind of that model of kind of a hypertrophy days and strength days can be their programming forever and that isn't a periodized model it kind of falls within the programming so yeah i'd recommend holger if he hasn't got the scientific principles of strength training by you guys to get that book and also read the article which i'll link below um about periodization and how there is no I, kind of loads of that's ones. right i i have corresponded publicly with mike zordos the dup guy on facebook where he said yes i think daily undulating periodization is good within the week i also think that month to month cycle to cycle you should vary your average repetitions based on your goal mike zordos says this is a good idea so when people say you know just do dup all year round if you told mike zordos that he'd be like hmm okay, that's good, but how about we vary some things between cycles? And you'd be like, no, bro, you don't know what you're talking about. DP, you do the same thing all the time. You'd be like, yeah, I invented DP, right? So it's one of those situations where it's a bit of a false dichotomy, right? Mm -hmm. You can have the ultimate style of training, which is the most effective style, which is called modern periodization. I learned about it in school. Um, in, uh, it, it, it uses undulating within the week elements, and then uses between week undulations and it uses between cycle undulations. It's undulation at all levels with purposeful goals. Uh, and and one you know one something I have to say um, on behalf of a friend of mine, uh, Broderick uh, Chavez. He's uh, one of Lyle McDonald's uh, personal friends, actually. Cool. And uh, you know he's a biologist by training, and he would go nuts if he heard this. Uh, term hypertrophy day or strength day within the week, these adaptations don't manifest over <laughs> the course of a fucking day, right? Uh, calling it a hypertrophy block, a hypertrophy cycle is even, you know, asking a bit much. Uh, I think that's reasonable, but, you know, hypertrophy week is a bit much. A day is nonsense. It's a high volume day. You repeat multiple high volume days over and over for weeks, you get hypertrophy, but a high volume day is not a hypertrophy day. It's just a high volume day with some predicted effects. And if you do high volume day and then a really low volume day and a high volume day and a really low volume day, you don't get hypertrophy over the course of that cycle. Um, just the same, you don't get very much strength accrual if you're high volume day, super low volume. High volume, super low, you don't get a ton of strength. Those aren't strength days. They're low volume days. But as soon as you follow it up with a high volume day, a bunch of the neurological adaptations start to reverse back to more uh, repetitive style nature. So blocks can be called hypertrophy blocks, strength blocks, etc. How you design them, there still should be some undulation, but they're not wild undulation. So, so if, you're, if your idea of DUP is, well, I do 15s on Monday, sets of 15. I do sets of five on Wednesday, and I do singles on Friday. You're essentially blending your main course, your soup, and your dessert into one fucking <laughs> meal. Now, it's still food. So if you're starving to death, it'll, it'll be fine. 
But other than that, it's not, not the greatest option. Mm-hmm. So things should come in courses and build and potentiate on each other, but you don't want them to be too boring, right? So you mix in a little variation, not boring from a psychological perspective, just analogically. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to make sure that you have a hypertrophy block where, you know, 10 to 15 reps, you know, on one day, and 6 to 10 on the other, 10 to 15, 6 to 10, 10 to 15. That allows for fatigue to go up and down and up and down and stay in check instead of just accumulating all the time allows you to uh, hit multiple fiber types preferentially so that they're always being rotated in and out and a variety of other benefits. But there should be undulation, but there should be a big goal for the macro cycle so that you're not all over the place in reps. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. cover this extensively in scientific principles of strength training where we basically go out and say like, what this is a violation of specificity is, for example, if you're doing singles in the same week that you're doing sets of 15, how much fatigue are you going to be carrying into your singles? A ton. Sets of 15, fuck you up. And the neurological benefits to explosiveness, to really uh, high force output characteristics that you start to gain in a couple of days after the singles, you're going to lose them all as soon as you do sets of 15 because your nervous system is going to start to reoptimize for sets of 15. So it's a bad deal to try to mix all of training together. It's a good idea to mix it a little bit but have still some distinct structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I was going to say, I think Mike Zerdo calls it patterning, like daily undulating patterning rather than period, like periodization. So there's patterns within the blocks. Um, I've heard one of podcasts. That's a very good term because periodization, periodization is the arrangement of the entire plan. Uh, you know, it's not different kind. There's, there is the, the practice of periodization. The details you choose are programming details. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So... We've got next question from Harry Target, who's asked, I'd be interested to find out how Mike warms up for the weight room. Do you utilize dynamic mobility, stretches, et cetera? Uh, any strategies you found to be beneficial, beneficial sorry, for improving the squat would be greatly benefited. Appreciated, sorry. <laughs> so warm me up for the weight room, mobility, dynamic stretching, particularly for the squat. Is there anything you particularly do, Mike? I'm the wrong motherfucker to ask about this stuff, man. The good Lord didn't design me for much, but he designed me to high bar squat with my eyes closed. (laughs) So now, mind you, it took me years to pick up the technique, and I used to have a rounded lower back and everything. But through technique practice, I've gotten very good at high bar squatting technically. Um, I uh, don't warm up in a special way. I show up to the gym. And I start with bodyweight squats, then I go to 135, and then I go to 225, and then I go to 315, and I just keep going up and up and up until I get my working sets. I do a potentiation set, and then I go. In between, if I'm feeling really tight in my adductors, I've had adductor injuries, probably stemming from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I'll stretch my adductors giving up some force production abilities for a little bit of an enhancement, a, a decrement in injury risk. And uh, uh, other than that, I really just don't do anything special. I don't even walk on the treadmill to warm up or anything like that. So um, I think the really good person to ask that question would be Quinn Hannock. If you could get Quinn on this uh, show at some point, that would be great. Mm-hmm. And repeat that question to him. He'd have a lot to say. He's a real specialist in mobility and warm-ups and stuff. I mean, he doesn't really think you should be doing much either, but he can certainly speak yeah. more to the mechanisms of why doing a lot isn't a good idea. I think a lot of people, 
piss away a lot of time doing crazy dynamic warm-ups and shit like that that have nothing to do with their event. The best warm-up, unless you're super fucked up and super injured, if you're injured, do whatever it takes to warm up. I'm not going to judge you. But if you're healthy, get a good blood flow going, go through the lifts with light weight, and then do what you have to do. And usually most people don't have mobility restrictions like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so here's, here's an irony I find among uh, some proponents of this kind of mobility dynamic, this and that. I know people who have super long warm-ups for the squat and all kinds of crazy S&M looking exercises that they do, <laughs> hang up chains and hang themselves from chains. Um, and, and, and on the other hand, you know, someone will say like, how do you train back? And they'll say, well, I, you know, I start my back workouts with pull-ups. And they say, so how do you warm up for pull-ups? I say, I just start doing pull-ups. I'm like, what the fuck? You, you go to <laughs> basically your 12 or 15 RM right away. Like that's insane. You don't load up 200 kilos in the squat and just start squatting it. I mean, you could, but it'd be fucking dumb, mm-hmm. but these people just start doing pull-ups. Like a better question for me, I think would have been how do you warm up for pull-ups? I go to the lat pull-down station and I do 100 pounds for 10 reps. Then I do 150 pounds for five reps. Then I do 200 pounds for a double then I go over to the pull-up area and I do one or two pull-ups with my body weight. Then I put on weight on the weight belt or if it's body weight pull-ups, I just stick to body weight and then do my first set. I think I have the longest pull-up warm-up ever. Why? Because when you weigh 240 pounds, pull-ups are a big compound lift. You can get hurt if you don't warm up properly and you sure as hell aren't going to have good performance. So I warm up like that for pretty much most of my first lifts that I do. I warm up for bent rows longer than anyone I've ever seen. Uh, but for some reason, for squatting and deadlifting, I don't warm up as much as other people. And I think some people are just really into the magic of the warm ups are going to get them some kind of magical potentiation. I think most yeah. potentiation comes from actually lifting the submaximal loads in the warm up. Yeah, I ha- in personal experience, when I've warmed up excessively, it ends up my actual performance is worse. And uh, you only need as much mobility as you need to perform the lift. So as long as you have that, then you don't need to do excessive warm-ups to try and do get magical extra games. 100%. But yeah, I'll, uh, I'll message Quinn and try and get him on because, yeah, I was thinking to do that anyway. So I'm glad you've suggested it. And uh, I have to say, he, he definitely knows his stuff. And yeah, we'll get him on. So next yeah. question I think is really interesting is from Mike Murray. And he's asked your thoughts on the potential research regarding high-frequency training and the benefits for hypertrophy in advanced athletes. So he quotes Menno Henselman, who I think you're aware of, and he's a big advocate of high-frequency training. Um, And I've seen a few of his programs, and yeah, they're all very high-frequency, if not kind of every single day, everything worked to some degree. And uh, he talks about the Norwegian Frequency Project, and how the advanced athlete has a shorter window for muscle protein synthesis and that uh, the more advanced athletes seem more resistant to muscle damage. And uh, yeah, how how do you see that? Because he also quoted, he knows that your stance is always about the bigger and stronger athletes can't do as many overloading workouts during the week. Yeah. One thing I have to say is that the studies on more advanced athletes not having as long uh, of windows of adaptation or of hypertrophy after training. Um, I haven't seen any studies in which that, w- which that was con- the volume loads were controlled for experience. Um, if I do the same kind of workout 
that I did when I was 15 years old, I wouldn't grow at all from it. Matter of fact, it wouldn't even be a deload. Back then, it used to get me five days of elevated fractional synthetic rate, right? Now it gets me zero. So to really test how long growth rates are elevated between beginner and advanced athletes, you have to do proportionate workouts. What is a hard workout for an advanced athlete is beyond the reach of a beginner. What is hard for a beginner is a joke to an advanced athlete. So much of a joke that you would expect if you gave them both the same hard workout, the same workout, even if it's scaled to strength, it's not enough for the advanced athlete. So there's two fundamental ways to go about adjusting for the fact that growth becomes harder as you get bigger. One way is to train more frequently, but similar pulsatility of sessions, similar sets and reps that you used to. So let's say you used to do three, three by eight twice a week, and it got you growing great. When you become more advanced, three by eight, three times a week, then maybe later, four times a week. The other way to grow is three by 16, right? Or three by 12 or six by eight or something like that uh, twice a week, right? To double the volume load. So make each session bigger instead of make more frequent mm -hmm. sessions. Within the realm of two to four sessions that are overloading per week per muscle group, it is by no means clear which one of these methods is better than the other. The Norwegian Frequency Project showed hints of the fact that the higher frequency mode was, in fact, better. Uh, on, uh, you know, when you look at the raw data, it looks much less impressive because a couple of outliers, while they're important, seem to bias the data to at least some extent. Mm -hmm. And one study doesn't prove fucking anything. One study is the beginning of a curiosity. So there's, on the one hand, we have the Norwegian Frequency Project as pretty good data to say that frequency matters. On the other hand, we have uh, lit reviews by, by Brad Schoenfeld and his team that show that between two and three days a week of training for the same volume loads, uh, there is not even a significant difference in hypertrophy. And, and uh, it, practically, it's hardly a difference at all. Mm -hmm. so, so to think that there's a, a big difference between three and six sessions a week, it, very spurious, it, for advanced athletes as well. Now, you could say, yeah, but the, you know, Brad Schoenfeld's uh, you know, population that he's been testing is you know, kind of beginner and intermediate guys, and even when he says they're advanced, maybe they're not that advanced advanced. They're certainly not Norwegian powerlifter advanced, mm -hmm. which I'll get back to those individuals in that study who, who were tested. Um, we look at, okay, so advanced, we want to look at advanced. Let's look at what advanced people actually do because it isn't instructive. Almost no one who is advanced trains at super high frequencies. And I mean, almost no one. What we see in the field is that as individuals progress, their frequencies of overload drop. They don't go up. Um, Having been myself through this progress, I can tell you that some of these ideas about how often to train, I've tried, and they just straight up got me hurt <laughs> because recovery takes so much longer. Uh, maybe you don't grow as much anymore, but you every time you overload, you get hypertrophy and you get fatigue. And yeah, you'd more hypertrophy more if you could hit it more often in six days a week, but the fatigue starts to go completely on, uh, out of hand. It's completely insane. And there's something to not, you know, there's some amount of fatigue that'll occur if you do six sets of squats in one session 
versus a set of squats every day for six days. Mm-hmm. You do six, six sets of squats in one session, you get a good warm-up effect, and you get a little bit of fatigue that keeps your force production down, and the injury risk is relatively low. If you squat one good hard-working set every day for six days, by day number six, I think you're actually in pretty high likelihood or higher likelihood for getting fucking hurt if you're really strong. Mm-hmm. which brings me back to the Norwegian frequency study. I don't mean this in a d- disparaging way at all. Okay, we're not all on special sports supplements and the Norwegian team has been drug tested like a trillion times. They were lifting from memory. I could be getting this wrong. The average max squat is like 180 kilos or so, I think in that cohort. Mm-hmm. Is that really an advanced athlete? Fuck. No. I mean, See if you squatted one eighty, haven't you, or something to that yeah. effect? Like, I mean, like I squatted one eighty when I was like fucking nineteen or something. Like, one eighty is an impressive squat. Could I have survived six a day training when I squatted one eighty as a max? Yeah, I probably would have benefited from it. You get guys squatting two fifty for a max. How many of them are going to survive that kind of training? Ah, uh, <laughs> man, you know. Very few. Now they're really advanced, right? And we're not even talking about 300 or 350 or 400 kilo squatters. Forget about them. But, you know, that idea of advanced, I would call those guys, you know, high, high level intermediates as far as strength is concerned. And I think for them, six day a week is survivable. The other thing that wasn't considered in such a study, it wasn't a very long study. And the sustainability of such a plan is not considered. It may very well be the case that high-frequency training works in a concentrated loading block. But if mm-hmm. you keep that shit up, you might just fry yourself, and there's just no way you're going to recover. You're going to start to accumulate all injuries, overreaching, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a method of sustainable programming. Is super high-frequency training better than moderate-frequency training? Uh, maybe, but by no means clear. So one kind of big problem I have, it's not much of a problem, one of my little, just a little Israel quirks, a little like uh, nuisances, <laughs> is when people are like, what do you think about the high frequency stuff? I don't fucking think about much of it because there's damn near no data on it. And, yeah. and it's not something almost anyone who's Jack does. Now, every now and again, scientists will come up with shit that Jack people don't do that they should be doing that's even better. That's the beauty of science. But it's not all the fucking time, right? And, and a lot of times science rediscovers that it turns out that, hey, you know, the Jack people were right to begin with. The classic example is protein dosing. Yeah. In the 80s and 90s, it was cool to make fun of bodybuilders for eating so much protein because, oh, you can't use that much. It was really stupid. Now everyone's fucking bending over backwards and be like, oh, fuck, well, how wrong were we? There's all these great benefits of high-protein diets, especially for dieting bodybuilders, especially if they're drug-free, especially three weeks away from the bodybuilding show especially with hunger is another consideration altogether on yeah. top of that. I mean, it's insane. There's, there's guys, I remember reading uh, Alan Aragon or Brad Schoenfeld's um, review on natural bodybuilder recommendations and, and they were recommending protein amounts. Even I wasn't eating at the time. And I thought at the time, I was like, this is even too high for what I do. This is insane. It was just straight up knowledge that the new standard in science. Yeah. So, so boy, did the, the bros fucking win that one. Now, now, now let me, let me be clear here. A lot of shit bros do is, fucking totally insane and stupid and i don't have like i'm not one of these guys like fucking the bros have it right brother we're in the fucking trenches fuck the trenches half those people have fucking write their own name but sometimes when almost all of them do something a certain way man you can't just come in and be like nope that's fucking wrong and we all have to train six days a week for the same Mm -hmm. muscle group like maybe and maybe that's true 
but let's not get fucking carried away with it. You know what I mean? A good ap- application is if you currently train twice a week, take your volume load and split it up into three sessions. Make sure you have some pulse utility. There shouldn't all be three the same size, one big, one medium, one, one smaller one. See how it works. Brad Schoenfeld's team already confirmed that you're probably going to get a little bit of a benefit, but is there a benefit to four? Is there a benefit to five? Is there a benefit to six? I mean, fuck. Like, I, I, can, I can promise you one thing. I can promise you one thing to everyone who's listening. It's not going to change the game. You got someone who trains hard three days a week or two days a week for a muscle group. Them training six days a week is going to make fucking tiny difference, if any. But I love tiny differences because they're the ones that take you from fifth place to first place on a bodybuilding stage mm-hmm. or a powerlifting stage. So, uh, powerlifting platform, sorry. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so it's meaningful, maybe, maybe. But, but one study and some speculation based on what I think is mildly misapplied research because of that lack of equivocation of difficulty. I, I just don't see any reason to get carried away with it. And in my own personal experience is that overloading sessions, you know, I, I used to do two overloading sessions for my back work uh, until literally last month. And then I can't survive it anymore. My back is now, which is great news, so big and so strong. <laughs> I can do 1.5 overloading sessions per week. So if someone told me I had to do train my back six times a week hard, even though it was one set at a time, I actually tried that this summer. I literally pulled my tricep on day number five, <laughs> I was like, it was just too much fatigue and my muscles just weren't dropping as much. Um, you know, and there's another consideration of pulsatility there, right? We talk about DUP is great because it's pulsatile. It allows for recovery adaptation. It's not slam, 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 slam. What the fuck is high frequency training other than slam, 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 slam? That's at least got to be concerned. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, there might be some variations in volume load, et cetera, et cetera. But then we're not talking about six overloading sessions anymore. Maybe we're talking about three overloading sessions and, and three light sessions. Then that's a different argument. And I think that way of training is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Do you have to do that many light sessions? Could you just take days off? Probably. Uh, can smaller, weaker lifters benefit from more frequency? I think they can. Um, uh, they can get away with less frequency too, but they can get away with all kinds of shit and grow. I think optimally they can recover faster, so they should be able to be more frequent. Or females, for example. I mean, everyone who knows, who trains females knows they can do fucking slam them and they take whatever. Like, they recover really fast. Mm-hmm. You get a guy that squats 250, you don't just put him in the grinder, right? Um, you can. You try it. But, you know, I don't think it, I, I personally think there are some caveats there. So what do I think about super high frequency training? I think it's, it's a curiosity, very interesting to see where more research on high level people takes us. For now, I wouldn't abandon your current training style and I would be assured that two to four days a week for most muscle groups is if not even better than six days a week over the long course of research findings in the future, at least almost as good, so no concern. And the risks to high frequency training I think are high enough for us to not run and, and right into it and just abandon everything. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any benefits for people to play with their frequency? So go through periods of time, whether maybe twice per week, three times per week, four times per week. So they go through that maybe to help accumulate volume through blocks. Could that be a potential benefit to them? I think athletes for whom technique is important need to keep the frequency high anyway. And there may be an optimal frequency there that's higher than you're used to. In weightlifting, most weightlifting training is a very high frequency because weightlifting is very technical. Um, but, you know, because a technique, <coughs> sorry, technique SRA curves, they decay really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you can train technique productively twice a day, right? Uh, if you want. So weightlifters often have multiple daily sessions. If your goal is hypertrophy, the differences in frequency um, are going to be, uh, or the differences in frequency that manifest as differences in, in size are going to be so small, they're, they're barely going to be noticeable. But just for pure psychological variation and playing with different structures of programs, I think you can have some blocks where you do two days a week for each muscle group, some blocks where you try three, some where you try four. You're going to have to pay attention like crazy to see any really good results. But I think that some muscles and some movements are just more conducive to high-frequency training because mm -hmm. they don't fatigue a lot. Uh, you know, if you train your hamstrings with stiff-legged deadlifts, uh, can you do that every day? The answer is no. <laughs> you can. You'd have to lower your volume loads like insane amount, and you won't even be overloading. So anytime you overload meaningfully with your hamstrings, they're going to get delayed onset muscle soreness for a couple of days. So they're inherently delimited. For muscles, like some people can train their lats every day, uh, biceps, uh, you know, side delts, rear delts. Some people can train their calves every day. They just recover really fast. Mm -hmm. So I think the better indicator of how often you should be training is how often do your muscles uh, recover? How quickly do they recover? If they recover really fast, if there's a really quick turnover, um, I think you're golden to, mm -hmm. to, to really have a higher frequency. So for example... You know, could, can you get away with training legs once a week? Quads? Yeah, probably. You probably fuck them up for a good four or five days. Biceps? If you're not training your biceps at least twice a week, you're spending most of the week not getting bigger biceps, right? So I think it's more muscle specific than it is. I don't think the whole body should be applied to this like a very high frequency mm -hmm. type of situation. I, I think if you train your biceps every day, you can probably get away with that and get really good growth. Yeah. Tra train your quads every day? Good luck. I wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. yes yeah, those i remember you saying in the book it's the smaller slower twitch muscle fibers that recover faster and if you're a smaller individual then they're going to recover even faster um so yeah that's great so if we get on to the next question from roberto um we'll get back to mike in a minute you might have to do some i can hear i can hear <laughs> Cool. Um, I'll just edit that bit out. That's cool. So Roberto Ricciadella has asked, what's your opinion on two times a day weight training as a way of increasing volume during a mass? Or would you be concerned that it's just junk volume kind of stuff that's not really going to help you benefit and grow? You should just be better off recovering. Mm, I think it's great. When you get into two time a day weight training, I am operating under the assumption that you ran out of other days of training, <laughs> that you're training at least six days a week, right? Because if you could, why don't you just make them fresh and, and come in fresh on another day? So I'm assuming you ran out of training time. You train at least four days of the week, maybe hopefully up to six. When you need to get to two day, time of day training, uh, two, time, two time of day training is very productive, but it's so productive that your risk of overreaching over training is now extant. It is high. So I'd say the limiting factor isn't on junk volume. As a matter of fact, two-time-a-day training is a great way to prevent junk volume, which I'll talk about what that means in a second. But before we get all happy about two-time-a-day training, I got to say that that's a path to overtraining risk. Because what two-time-a-day training can do is allow you to train that much more with volume and intensity that you may start to really push past your MRV super easily. 
and uh, Alex Viata has spoken about this uh, uh, very eloquently on his Facebook, where he basically said, "Look, you know, if you train three or four days a week, and you're, you're just a lifter, you lift for an hour and a half, you don't fucking ever have to worry about overtraining. You're never gonna fucking overtrain. You don't train enough." You start training six days a week, twice a day, overtraining, overreaching is a constant risk. So you got to be on the ball with fatigue management. On to the benefits of twice a day training. If the following uh, uh, conversation assumes you are on fatigue management, like white on rice. Benefits of twice a day training. Back and biceps. Let's say I have to train them in one session. I have to do one of two things. One pick what I want to grow and train it first, or two, be okay with something not getting greatest training. How much can you bicep curl when you're fresh? 50 kilos for a set of 10. That's a lot of intensity. That's a lot of disruption. That's a lot of high intensity volume load, the best kind of volume load to grow. If you do 15 sets or 10 sets of back work before getting to your biceps, what can you curl for 10? 40 kilos, maybe 35 can your biceps potentially handle more? Yes. Would they benefit from more? Yes. Is now, are you more likely to get into junk volume, which is by the way, defined as volume, not sufficiently stimulatory above threshold, but still work. Yes. You may only have three sets of biceps left until the fatigue is so high that everything after is junk volume, right? It's like, uh, imagine a cyclist who's also doing running training. If he cycles for 50 miles and then tries to run 10, how good is his running going to be? But it's going to fucking suck. That's not race pace running. That's survival running. He might have to walk. And so how much cardiovascular training are you getting from walking when you're that tired? I mean, not much. Flip it around or run before you cycle, and your cycling suffers. So there's an inherent limitation there. Split it up into two days, and now we're talking. AM, back. Hit back hard. And another benefit, while you're training your biceps, if you train them after back, Ideally, you should be recovering for back. You're back. You've turned up the stimulus. You've turned on the signal for growth. And now your back muscles are like, so signal for growth is on. Parasympathetic nervous system should be turning on soon. Food should be coming in. I'll wait. And you're still training biceps. Uh, okay, just kidding. We're not growing then, fellas. No, no growth. And it's just to turn down those signals. The best thing you can do after hitting a particular body part is go home, have your protein shake, start eating food, and relax, and stop touching it, right? Don't move. Uh, just the same way, when you do your back in the AM, you split up the two sessions, back in the AM, not only do you get to use all of your energy with back, you get a full recovery. Then later, you come back in the PM, your biceps aren't super tired like they were right after. You can hit them fucking super hard, and then also get recovery right after them. It's the best of both worlds. But it's so good that you can do this with your volume and intensities with them. And if you do that, MRV is right here. You go too far and you're over the hill. Mm -hmm. So um, one of my best, he's not a client. He's a colleague of mine, Jared Feather, a natural pro yeah. bodybuilder, works for Renaissance. And he's a former student of mine. Jared and I have similar training approaches, but he doesn't do jujitsu. He just does bodybuilding. So like when I look at his workouts, I'm like, oh my God, like he has a separate session for back and then arms and shoulders, like five, four times a week or something like, how the fuck do you recover from this? Because he doesn't do any other kind of sport. I couldn't recover from that. Mm -hmm. And, and Jared truly pushes his MRV um, close to it. 
with just weight training alone, and he really does. But but you, but because he does two a days, if we if we if I told him you can only train six sessions per week in lifting, he wouldn't be able to develop to his maximum potential. He has to split up the workload to be as good as he can be. Mm-hmm. But he's got to be careful about recovery. So I hope that answers the question to a good extent. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess it's one of those where people. It's very tempting, I think, for people when they hear maximal recoverable volume to just do more and more and more. And there becomes a point at which they have to realize their performance is getting so poor that they're not actually getting good stimulating work. So they might be using 60% plus of their kind of warm rep max, which should stimulate growth. But if it's poor work, it's it's junk volume. It's not going to help. Yeah. One of the... Uh... <laughs> And if you're able to edit this out and pull the following out as a snippet, this could be a cool snippet to put on YouTube. I don't know if you can do that. If you can, it'd be cool. I can try. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> if not, people will just find it as a little gem in here. Um, uh, Eric Helms brought my attention to this recently, and it is an unfortunate thing, but I suppose it's a thing. It's necessary to some extent. People are using the concept of MRV, which I was kind of introduced to people, as a justification for doing too much, there is a sick fucking irony there. Uh, the concept of MRV, I uh, quote invented or whatever, uh, in, in many discussions with uh, colleagues of mine from East Tennessee State when we were sport coaches and strength and conditioning coaches, I, I first thought of the concept as a way to communicate to coaches the idea that you have soccer players that are a certain amount of good, right? They're pretty good soccer players. And if they do this much soccer practice and then this much weight and then this much stretching and then this much conditioning, they don't just get fucking linearly better. You can't just add shit. And coaches would say, why not? And we'd say, well, fatigue. And, and they wouldn't click for them. They'd say, well, yeah, fatigue, you do you rest and relax and you do all the stuff and it gets better and then you train harder. The MRV concept was designed to communicate the following. This is how much you can recover from maximally. If you do everything you can to recover, that's it. If you go over that, it's not just, oh, well, we went over it and, you know, well, at least we didn't go under. No, no. You get worse if you go over it. I coined the MRV concept mostly to talk about overtraining, not undertraining. And now because it's got the fucking word maximal in it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, uh, maybe I should have called it total recoverable volume or something. But 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 then again, then, then it just doesn't like, it doesn't accumulate recovery. It doesn't it doesn't communicate the same idea? I don't think. I don't know. Maybe maybe it would have been a better term. But see what I'm saying? It's a fucking sick irony that people are using it to justify going too much. Maximal recoverable volume. Everywhere and always indicates two things, not one. It indicates that you could be doing too little and undertraining, but just the same way. It indicates that you could be doing too much. Mm-hmm. So when people are like, oh, MRV, bro, you got to smash it with 25, 30, 40 sets. I got guys messaging me be like, I seem to be able to tolerate like 35 sets for arms. Shut the fuck up. No, you don't. You just haven't died yet. Okay. <laughs> like, what's your progress like? They're like, oh, I don't see progress. Do you think I should go to 40? 40? Are you fucking nuts? You just get rhabdomyolysis and your arms will fall off. So, now, no, mind you, are there people out there that maybe do 35? Sure, fine. But most people can't survive that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's been, in MRV, I think, has turned into a little bit of a dick measuring contest where people are like, what's your MRV, bro? And, and like, people <laughs> ask me that. Like, they're like, hey, they, what's your MRV? And I'm like, well, typically MRV is between these ranges for most people who are of a certain training age. And they're like, no, 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 no. I, I want to know what your MRV is. 
And my first, yeah, my first instinct, not to be a dick, my first instinct is, who the, who the fuck gives a shit? Like, how the fuck is that going to help you? People, mm-hmm. like, ask me, like, Dr. Rizzo, what are your favorite diet foods? Who gives a fuck? I have shitty taste in food. Everyone who's known me my whole life is like, you're a picky piece of shit that eats bland food. <laughs> Which, by the way, I'm not as bad as Nick Shaw. Nick Shaw, like, is the most bland eater ever. Like, <laughs> best meal is, like, barbecue chicken and oatmeal. You can eat that shit till the day he dies. <laughs> so, people are like, what's your MRV? And I tell them. And they're, I, I, I feel like... They ask other people that, and they're like, well, my MRV is like 25 sets per week for back, and yours is only 15. It's not a good or bad. I win because I have to do less sets to get the yeah. same effect you do, right? You could put it like that, but it's really irrelevant. Uh, and it's, it's, just, it's interesting how the concept has morphed. Uh, so, so I just want to make it clear, you know, MRV is not, uh, you know, if you, if you do this much, you'll be better, but if you do more, it'll be great. It's a top-end Above it is bad, just like below it is good. And as a matter of fact, above it, it's probably worse. Mm-hmm. So if anything, erring on the side of undertraining a little bit, for most individuals that aren't super highly competitive athletes, that's probably an even better idea. A little bit. I'm not saying like, oh, MRV could be 20. Let's train five sets a week. That's dumb. Mm-hmm. But uh, doing your, you know, trying to do your best and erring a little bit on the side of, of, of precaution, I think is, is wise. And, and it's unfortunate that mrv has kind of become a poster child to some people for just going all out yeah it was designed for the opposite of that uh and uh i don't think it's a big deal because i'll continue to make that clear every time i talk i'm not like i'm I'm not an advocate of crazy insane wait do as much as you can training that is absolutely not an advocate of that and Mm -hmm. i formulate mrv concept to be an advocate over the opposite thing that you have limited recovery ability and you don't want to do more than you can recover from and adapt to uh but just the same way, I'm not an advocate of taking it easy for easy sake, like minimum effective dose stuff, which I put out those graphics. Hopefully that kind yeah. of clears up the difference between the two. Like if you train a minimum effective dose, you get the minimum results. Like, you know, that's not great. Yeah, I think it's, it's really important because I think some people are getting it misconstrued and they are, yeah, they're getting that element of it misconstrued. And But if you do come to source and you look at what you're saying, what MRV is, the definition, you defined it yourself, you are the creator. So what, what better place every single time you do make this, the caveat that there's, it's about, it's a limit, not a necessarily like you can always do more. It's not kind of, even though it's called maximal, it's, it is like a, it's like a battery. You've got a limited amount to use, which is why I did the, I wanted to define it and give people a place where I could just be like, read this, this will explain it um, okay. in a way you can, understand it so unless there's anything else you want to say mike i think if we call it there and uh, we can get to some of these other questions another time i think that was very productive bring on more questions i love it awesome yeah we love it too so thank you very much mike thank you very much everyone for tuning into the podcast and asking the questions and uh, we'll get to you soon cheers